Good morning. My name is George Hinman. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving and still enjoying uh, some leftovers, but it's really good to spend this time of worship this morning uh, together with you. Today, we're beginning a new series uh, for the four weeks of Advent leading up to Christmas morning called All Things New. The title comes from a promise that Jesus made in the book of Revelation, the very end of the Bible, where he said, behold, I'm making all things new. It's a great promise. Now, you... (laughs) Before we jump into this, let me just take a minute and address why we would look at the book of Revelation during Christmas time at Advent. Three reasons. Uh, first, the um, seasonal reason, and that is that you know this is a season in which we look forward to the coming of Christ. Typically, we think about it in the past because he came Christmas morning. But the great promise of the Bible is that he comes again. And uh, the word Advent means coming. And so it's very appropriate to uh, celebrate the book of Revelation, read the book of Revelation during this celebration of Advent because it speaks of his return. The book ends with Jesus saying, see, I'm coming soon. And then all of God's people reply, come, Lord Jesus. So that's the seasonal reason, but also a cultural our culture finds ourselves in a unique moment right now that makes the book of Revelation seem relevant. Uh, You know, the book of Revelation deals with plagues and politics and wars and natural disasters. And here we are in the midst of this pandemic and uh, political transition and economic crisis and all these things are happening in our day. (laughs) Used to be we didn't read the book of Revelation because it was so scary. We didn't know how to, we didn't understand it. Now it's not half as scary as the morning newspaper. So we're going to Revelation and it offers us this comfort. It it says, see, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen next. That's the way it begins, what's going to happen next. And so we're curious, what, what, what is happening next in our culture? How long will this last and what comes after? So Revelation is uniquely helpful in that sense. And then the third reason is is more pastoral. Um, I just believe we're in a season right now as a church where we really need to focus on Jesus. And this book is, it's not a revelation of the Antichrist, as a lot of people think. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. And uh, I think it's so important for us to understand our identity in Christ over against any identity that the culture gives us. Remember the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter three, first few verses there, he says, your life is hidden with Christ, hidden with Christ. You've died and your life is with Christ. When Christ is revealed, he says, it's a revelation. When Christ is revealed, you also will be revealed with him in glory. So that's why I want to look at Revelation together with you. Uh, We're going to look at the last two chapters of the book, just the very end, but you'll get a sense of the whole. And we'll still have some of the characters that are always part of us during the Christmas season, angels, shepherds, wise men. But Pastor Aaron and I, in the next four weeks, are going to introduce you to some other Advent characters, cities, brides, beasts, um, trees. And so we're going to just add to our cast. Each week, we're going to look at some of these characters. And the first figure I want to look at today is uh, in Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 5, the very beginning of the uh, second to the last chapter. So if you would, open up your Bible and... uh, You can follow along with me as we look at this text together. I'm going to read from the New Revised Standard Version. If you like, you could read with me. If you like, you could stand as a way of honoring our Lord. But when we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading God's holy word. Revelation 21, 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. 
for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, see the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. And also he said, Write this, for the words are trustworthy and true. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what we just read never will. Let's pray. Lord, you are the light that shined uh, over Bethlehem at the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Shine now in our hearts through your Holy Spirit that your word might speak to us. We pray in Christ's name, amen. So here's the apostle John, we believe, late in his life, maybe AD 94, 95, he's in exile uh, on an island persecuted for his faith in Jesus Christ. And he has this vision and it's a wild vision, it comes to an end in a beautiful way with these words. He has a, a vision of a city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven to this earth, adorned as a bride. A bride. This is the figure. A bride. Now, what does it tell us that we're to see ourselves as a bride? Now, for John, it doesn't mean he's a woman. John understands this, that there are many analogies that God uses in the scripture and some of them are masculine, like when Israel is asked to see themselves as a firstborn son. Some of them are feminine, like when Israel is asked to see God as a nursing mother. It doesn't mean he has to see himself as a woman. Uh, but, and it doesn't also, by the way, mean just that he's passionately loved, like a, like a bride would be. It does mean that, but it means more than that. And here's the essence of it as I read it. I think he's learning something about time. Time. Because there's something about a bride that has to do with timing. Think about it. Uh, before you're a bride, you're a date. After you're a bride, you're a wife. To refer to you as a bride is to say, you're in this moment between, in and between. See, there's a mo there's, you're in transition. You're, you're in a pause between two phases of life. You're caught. And, and, and that's intrinsic to the notion of, of being a bride, timing. Let me give you a little background on the uh, ancient practice of marriage and weddings in first century Judaism. There were three events, three steps. There was a betrothal ceremony, then a betrothal period, and then a wedding feast. Now, the betrothal ceremony was the beginning of the thing. A, a man who would be a groom would leave his father's house and go to the house of, a, of the woman he loved, of her father's house. And they would sit down and they would have a, a ceremony to make a covenant together, drink a cup of wine, and the groom would pay a great price as a symbol of his faithfulness and desire to care for this uh, new family member. The, the ceremony would conclude with a cup of wine, the paying of a price, the the groom then goes back to his father's house and they'll be separated during the betrothal period, which is the second stage. And it, it usually would last several months, rarely more than 24 uh, uh, months. 
But after that period, and by the way, during that period, it's more than our engagement because if, if uh, he should die, she would be a, a widow. If she should break up the relationship, they would be divorced. So it was a real commitment, but they weren't together during that time. See, they're separated during that. They're committed to one another. They belong to one another, but the betrothal period is a period where they're living separately. And they're, what they're doing is they're preparing for the wedding feast. Um, she's getting ready for the feast and beauty and clothing and just emotionally prepared. And then he's doing the same emotional preparation. He's probably doing more than that as well, likely expanding his father's house, making it ready for a woman to come and live, oftentimes building a new room, maybe in addition. Betrothal period. Now, that comes to a close when the groom would leave his father's house a second time, would cross over to the house of the bride's father, and oftentimes this would be at night, and he'd come with some friends and they'd be singing and dancing. This is a big night for them. Um, and with a sound of music, he would call out, uh, awake, arise my loved one, like the uh, Song of Solomon, come my fair one, something like that. He calls and the windows, all the lights come on and everybody pours out, uh, the bride and her bridesmaids and family, and they all go in a grand procession back to the house of the groom where they have a party the wedding feast lasts a week, sometimes as much as two weeks. And they would feast, they'd drink and dance and, and sing, and it was a very joyous occasion. Now, it's interesting that when our Lord comes to earth as a human being, he uses this imagery. He, he, he says, you know, that John the Baptist is the friend of the bridegroom. His first miracle is changing water into wine at a wedding. He, he comes into our space to make covenant with us with the drinking of a cup, the Last Supper, and then the cross. He pays a great and terrible price with his blood because it's a, it's a betrothal ceremony. And then he departs, right? He's back to the Father's house. He says, I'm going back. In my father's house, there are many rooms. I go back to prepare a place for you. This is what a groom would do to make ready this new home for us. It's the betrothal period. He's away. He's committed. We're committed, but he's away. And then with the twinkle of an eye, with the sound of a trumpet, notice the music, he comes back to our, our home. And he calls out, arise, my beloved, come forth. And he takes us home to this great feast. The feast of the lamb, it's portrayed in the book of Revelation. If you look at chapter, I think it's 19, two chapters earlier, around verse six, we see this, the wedding feast of the lamb. This is the imagery that John is given to see. And so a bride, we are the bride of Christ, the scriptures tell us, and he is our bridegroom. And I think in revealing himself to John in this way, what he's really doing is telling John what time it is. This is, this is what time it is, John. You're in this pause. You're in the in, in between. You're in a moment of transition. Uh, this is a, a pause. And, and it's an uncomfortable moment, but, but it's good to know what time it is and what to expect. You're in this moment in the, the redemptive story, and we're in the same moment. It's a betrothal period. With all the tensions of betrothal, the togetherness and yet the absence, the faithfulness and yet the unfulfillment. That's where we're living right now. 
But let me tell you, what changes life today is the life that's coming. And the groom is coming soon. Let me share with you three bridal tasks, really three implications that grow out of this passage. Three bridal tasks for us. The first one is this, to prepare for a new home. That's the task. This is about where you live. And remember, a bride, while she's in the father's house, no longer, that's no longer her home. She's there, but it's not her home anymore. She grew up there. It's all she knows. She's used to it. She's accustomed to it, habituated to it, but it's not her home anymore. No, her home is, is what's coming in the future in the home of the bridegroom. She's beginning to acclimate herself to a new home even as she lives in the old. And this is very much what a follower of Jesus Christ is meant to do. It's uncomfortable living out of place in a new place, citizens of heaven while we live on earth. Now, John gets at this with two figures in this revelation. We have, we have the bride, the figure of the bride. We also have the figure of a harlot. Both of these figures represent cities. They're, they're symbols of cities. The bride is a, is, a, is a representative of the heavenly city that's coming down out of Jerusalem. We've already learned that. The harlot is a representative of the earthly city that, that they're in. Um, actually, in, in, the, in the culture of Rome, the, the, the harlot represents a, it's kind of a parody of a figure that Rome admired. They had this figure, a female figure, um, Dea Roma, or Roma Eterna, uh, the goddess of Rome, or eternal Rome. And she was a figure, she was a female figure, not a real figure, but this, she captured the essence of Rome and, and the Roman culture wherever they were, including Asia Minor, where, where John is. And the, 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 the harlot in uh, Revelation seems to us to represent uh, the financial idolatry of Rome, the financial adultery of Rome, that the culture of finance, uh, of finance has become perverted in the Roman Empire, that the, 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 the luxuries of Rome, that Rome could afford you if you played by its rules, were very enticing. There was just so much to, there was so much wealth that poured into that empire and its, and its cities and it allured you. But at the same time, it also degraded you and dehumanized you because it was idolatrous. It was not in the service of God. And we see this when we see in, uh, in, in Revelation 18, there's an economic crisis that comes and we get this picture of, of the merchants and the traders who had been taken in by the harlot, uh, but now we're being disappointed by it because there's economic collapse and the goods are, are immobilized in society and there's a list of them, gold and jewelry and um, spices, cinnamon and so forth. But if you read the list, the surprise is that at the end, it's human lives, it's slaves. This is a hint that the harlot, while promising you something that's attractive to you and beautiful to you and promises so much to you, in the end will disappoint you. It's just a harlot. Now, the contrast with that is the bride. And John's imagination is being inflamed with the imagery that's here, the holy city. Look, in this place, there's joy. Uh, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There's peace. Death will be no more. There's justice, mourning and crying and pain will be no more. This echoes Isaiah 65, where we get this beautiful picture of joy and peace and justice. Um, the infants will grow, every infant will grow up to a full, have a full life. The elderly will feel fulfilled at the end of their days. Uh, workers will 
eat the fruit of their labors. Uh, the, lamb will lie, the lamb will lie down with the wolf. So it is peace and justice. So these two cities, the two spirits, they represent a, a great contrast. Now we live in one, the city of the harlot, but we're really to be at home in the other, the city of the bride. So we have the same task that a bride has, which is to become, be, begin to acculturate yourself to a place you've never been. That's, that, that's the task. One city is dominant, the harlot right now, but another city is determinant. That's the bride, uh, because the, the, the city of the groom, which is coming. So really, the way to think about the imagery, so much of it in Revelation, is kind of like political satire. It's not to be taken too literally. Um, it's like a, a cartoon that you'd see on the cover of a magazine or maybe a late night sketch on television that kind of takes up the dynamics of the day and embodies them in some way. And what they do is they, they kind of make it look unattractive to you. So you'd say, I wouldn't want that. So the harlot is, is, is a, a comic and tragic figure to make us say, oh, I don't, I'm not sure I really want to live with that spirit. It's so transitory, degrading, dehumanizing. But, but, but it challenges us to ask, how much of that spirit is in me? How at home am I in this place? How willing am I to become uncomfortable with the culture and the values of the world around me? So I, I, I'm called to prepare for a new home. Come out of her, the text says in chapter 18, verse four. Come out of her. There's a voice from heaven. I think it's the voice of the bridegroom. And he doesn't mean move away. He, he means don't engage with that dehumanizing culture. It's interesting because the follower of Jesus is here asked to kind of deconstruct the systems of their day that dehumanize people and to challenge them and to resist them and to live out of a, a healthier uh, set of values. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. That's our home, uh, John says. See, what changes life today is the life that's coming tomorrow. And the groom is coming soon. That's our first uh, bridal task, prepare for a new home. The second one is this, put on new garments. Second task, put on new garments. This is about your identity, what you wear, what can be known about you when people see you. See, a, br a bride puts on new clothing uh, for her new life. We, we, we do this even today. And oftentimes it's borrowed clothing at somebody else's. It might be a grandmother's dress or I, I went and rented a tuxedo, right? Put on our best possible clothes, somebody else's clothes, so that we uh, can live with the beauty to which we're called uh, in this groom. Now, here's the thing that's interesting about this particular groom, Jesus, as we know the story from the stories of the gospel, he chooses unlikely lovers, I mean, he's actually not saying get away from the harlot. He's actually moving toward the harlot. And we love this about Jesus. He's moving towards the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the outcasts and those who are marginalized and the poor. He's moving towards them in the gospel. And he's giving them new clothes, new clothes, his clothes to wear. In that sense, this marriage is kind of like a second marriage. It's a marriage of reconciliation. It's a bringing together of those who were hostile towards one another. That's the implication of reconciliation. But God does it with this beautiful groom born on Christmas Day, Jesus coming into the world. And he, and he comes to give us new clothes. Jesus offers us what we call the righteousness of Christ, his righteousness, his good standing with the Father, 
his good deeds, his virtue and character is just given to us. And it's what we're asked to believe in as followers of Jesus Christ. Luther referred to this as alien righteousness. And I really like that phrase. I think it would be good for us to use it more often. This is essentially what it means to be a, a Christian. It's to claim an alien righteousness, not your own good deeds, not your own good works, but the good deeds and good works of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's an alien righteousness because it, it comes from outside of us. The Latin for that is extra nos, from outside of us, not from within, but from outside. It's given to us as a gift, just as a free gift of grace. The righteousness of Christ is given to us. It's an alien righteousness because it comes from another land, from another country, from another place. It comes, we now know, from the home, the heavenly home, the new Jerusalem. It comes from our groom. He gives his clothing to us. This is why the New Testament is constantly telling us, put off the old, put on the new. It's dressing language. Put off the old clothes, put on the clothes that come from Jesus Christ. Actually, this is what Christmas is all about. Before Christmas, before God comes into time and space as a human being, there is not a single human righteousness available to anybody. But when God is swaddled in our rags, he is so that we can be adorned in his splendor. See, that's why he's done it. So that a human can stand before God in the righteousness of Christ. You know, there's a moment where Jesus is talking to some people and he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? And then he says, get away from me because I never knew you. It's really a challenging moment. But notice how they respond. They go, well, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do miracles in your name? Notice what they're doing. They're calling attention to their righteousness. Didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? Aren't we good? Aren't we? Did... Aren't these nice threads? They're saying to Jesus. And Jesus goes, you'll never stand before God in your own righteousness. That's what's missing. Jesus is wanting them to appeal to his righteousness, which is a free gift of grace. Let me, can I, you know, can I, as a pastor, can I ask a favor from you? If you should ever find yourself in the presence of God, please do not appeal to your own righteousness. Please immediately point to the righteousness of your Savior, Jesus Christ. I stand before God, not because of what I've done or who I am, but because of what he has done and who he is. That, that's, what I want, that, that's what I want you to be able to say. And that's what it means to be a Christian. Put on new garments. By the way, we have to do this for our mission. You know, we're joining Jesus at UPC in his mission to reconcile all people, reconcile to God, reconcile to one another. This is our mission. But we cannot do it if, unless we have an experience of reconciliation ourselves, unless we come before God and we allow him to confront the rags that we're living in. I mean, we're dressed like we're going to the bar for a beer with a harlot, if we're honest. And we have to let the light of his goodness shine into our lives, and that's an uncomfortable process. But it's only when we do that that we're gonna be willing to take the garment from him, take his righteousness, and put it on ourselves. It's essential for our mission. I like what W.H. Auden raises the question, how can you love your crooked neighbor with your crooked heart? That's such a good question. N.T. Wright puts it differently. He says, if the gospel isn't transforming you, how do you know that it will transform something else? 
How can you be an advocate for reconciliation in the world and justice in the world if you do not let Jesus to confront the injustice, the unreconciliation, the brokenness in your own life? So we need to put on new garments. Prepared, John sees a city that is prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, dressed for her husband by her husband. That's the second bridal task, put on new garments. And the third is this, keep your oil fresh. What changes life today is the life that's coming tomorrow and the groom is coming soon. So let us keep our oil fresh. This is about how we prepare during the pause. A bride needs endurance. There are two people that I know for whom the clock never moves slower. And that is a child waiting for Christmas morn. And that is a fiance who's waiting for her or his wedding day. That moment just never seems to come when you need it to come. It takes so long. So it requires endurance. And this is what it means to be a bride, to be in the betrothal period. It means to have this mixture of anticipation. There's such an adrenaline rush. When, when couples come into my office, they sit on the same chair if they're, in the, you know, if they're preparing for their wedding. Anticipation, but at the same time, frustration, because it's just not coming. And the, re- the experience of the relationship just doesn't feel like what it should feel like. All the words that we use as followers of Jesus, the promises, the songs that we sing, and yet our lives seem so different. That's just part of the frustration of the period that we're in. He hasn't come back. Our salvation hasn't been completed, not personally or globally. So we have to, we have to be patient. Keep our oil fresh. John felt this. He, he, the beginning of his letter, and Revelation is a letter. Look at chapter one, verse nine. He uses two terms for this. The one is pressure. It's the word that's oftentimes translated tribulation in Revelation, the tribulation. You know, what it, it, it can be translated tribulation, persecution, trouble, affliction, suffering. What it really points to is being squeezed. I get this picture in my mind of, of something being squeezed between two rock surfaces. You're under pressure. And of course you are, because you're trying to live between these two homes. You got the harlot and the bride, and you're trying to work with the bride, but you're still working with the harlot. You're under pressure, tribulation. That's what happens in this in this period. But the other word he uses is patient endurance. He says, "I share the tribulation with you, but I'm holding up in Christ patient endurance. Play the long game." Do you remember the? the story that Jesus told about the 10 bridesmaids and they, they're waiting for the groom in the night and it's a long night and their oil, some, half of them, their oil runs out. And Jesus is saying, it's gonna be a long night. It's gonna be a long night. It's gonna take some time. You're gonna have to live for a long time with, with things that are not the way they're supposed to be inside of you and outside of you. And I'm gonna tell you, we all feel it. God has decided, I don't know why, but he has decided in his infinite wisdom to come once into the world but there's a pause between the two comings, the first and the second, the two advents, and we're living inside that pause. Our salvation is here, it's begun, but it's not complete, not fulfilled. So we have to be patient with ourselves. I, I, want, I urge you to be patient with yourself. Um, we have to learn to live with the parts of ourselves that are still broken and not yet redeemed. And then we need to be patient with others. 
like our children, our neighbors, we're praying for people to come to know Jesus and sometimes it just seems like it takes forever. Our Lord understands this and he's patient with us. He's given us time. This is a season of time. In fact, he says to Peter, you know, uh, a thousand years, it's like a day for me. And the Lord is not slow about his promise because he wants all to, he doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants all to come to repentance. He's drawn out time so that we all have opportunity to receive life in this groom to be his bride. He gives us time. He also gives us the oil of the Holy Spirit. Oil in the Old, in the Old Testament was a symbol of the Holy Spirit. He pours the Spirit into our hearts. The Spirit's re- re- referred to in places as the beginning of the new age. He's the, the, the end times that begins in us is, is brought by the Holy Spirit. And so John says in chapter one, verse 10, he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. That's what you do while you're waiting. You come again day after day into the presence of your bridegroom through the Holy Spirit, the beginning of his salvation. The the first note of of the wedding celebration is heard through the spirit. Last week, I had a conversation with one of you, one of our young adults who's a nurse and working in one of the great hospitals of Seattle, and she talked to me about the burnout she sees all around her. She says, a lot of her coworkers don't believe in Jesus. She says, I'm just so glad I do. I'm just so glad I have Jesus. I don't know how else I would get through this without Jesus, but it's like he's carrying me through, and he's what gives me hope. I'm gonna tell you, we need to pray for those who are working in our medical places these days, public health. If we pray for you, pray that God will support you, but we most especially pray that you'll know Jesus and that the Holy Spirit will encourage and strengthen you and give you patient endurance. See, I am making all things new. He's coming. What changes life today is the life that's coming tomorrow and the groom is coming soon. Prepare for a new home, put on new garments and keep your oil fresh. Jesus has prepared a place for you with the Father. He's told us that. If you've given your life to him, you're ready right now, should he return. If you haven't given your life to him yet, I urge you to do it now. This is what this time is for, and who knows how long it lasts. We had a wonderful worship service last week. I hope you participate. If you haven't, please go back and watch the message. Send it to your neighbors and friends. Jesus asks, what do you want me to do for you? And what he wants to do for us is give us eternal life, to make us a child of the great king, to invest us with his Holy Spirit to begin to transform our lives. Maybe you've been thinking about that all week because we've been praying for you to do so. And if you didn't respond last week, I want you to respond right now. Come to upc.org slash Jesus. We have some information. But more than that, we'd like to talk to you. There's a button there. It's labeled Spiritual Advisors. Please click that button. There's some very friendly people. I know them all. They're very gracious and kind. You want to get to know them. And they will pray with and for you and help you cross the threshold into new life in Christ. Uh, Please do that. This has been a wonderful time at UPC. We're seeing people respond to Jesus, and it's encouraging me so much. This isn't just about an intellectual decision. This isn't just about uh, thinking Jesus is a nice person, admiring him from a distance, or saying you you adopt his platform. This is about encountering the living God in in Jesus Christ. Our, Our emeritus pastor, Bruce Larson, 
used to say to us. Nobody becomes a follower of Jesus by just saying true. Like nobody gets married just by saying true. We get married because someone says, will you take this man? And you say, I do. And that's what I want to encourage you to say today. I do. I take Jesus. You know who gets the best seat in the house at a wedding? I hate to tell you, say it, I'm not I'm bragging here, but it's, it's me. It's the minister who stands at the head of the aisle. I get to stand next to the bridegroom. <laughs> and, and we stand there, two guys, and we watch as that bride comes around the corner and suddenly into view and begins to slowly make her way down that aisle. It gets me every time. I can't not cry. And it usually gets the groom as well, if he's sober, sober enough. And, we, and there's these two guys that are tears in her eyes. Oftentimes the groom wants to just dart down because at some point I have the groom go and take the arm of, the, of, the, of his bride and, and come forward together. He's, he's looking at me going, can I go now? Can I go now? Can I go now? I'm saying, nope, nope, nope. I have to kind of hold on to his coattail. What I want you to know, friend, is that if you take this text seriously, you can know in this moment right now, you have a groom in heaven. And he's watching you come around the corner and slowly make your way towards him in life. And it gets him. It brings a tear to his eye. His palms are sweaty. His shoes are rattling on the floor. And he's looking at the father in heaven. He's looking at his father saying, can I get her now? Not yet. Can I get her now? Not yet. Now, not yet. But I want to tell you, one day, and that day may be very, very soon, the father is going to look to the son, and the son is going to look to the father, and the father is going to say, now. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what a beautiful circle of love and joy and goodness and peace and justice your fellowship represents. Oh, how we thank you for the Christmas story, for the story of Revelation, that you have come and that you are coming again to break that circle open and to transform our circles with it. And so we humbly bow ourselves before you. We joyfully reach out our hearts and souls and spirits to you and say, come, Lord Jesus, come. We pray that that invitation will be meaningful to us. We pray that it'll be so meaningful that we'll share it with our neighbors, our loved ones, people to whom you've sent us as well. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.